This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 6, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Adam Smith did write another book, and that book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, deals in unique ways with how we, as people, ought to engage with each other. Russ Roberts is author of the new book, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness. We spoke yesterday. I think what you've done here is really done a fairly effective job at reviving a book that might have otherwise easily been forgotten by history. What inspired you to do that? Well, you know, it's not forgotten by academics. Philosophers are interested in Adam, both of Adam Smith's books, but economists aren't, and certainly everyday people aren't interested probably in either of his books. But the reason I was interested in the theory of moral sentiments, which I I would call his, at least his neglected book, is it's a very different portrait of humanity and our complexity than is usually thought of as Adam Smith's view. So people tend to see Adam Smith as, as an advocate for selfishness, and I think that's very unfair. He was an advocate for viewing human beings as being self-interested, which I think is undeniably true, just a simple fact about our nature. We tend to be self-centered. We tend to see ourselves as the center of the universe. That's just the way we're constructed. And some people interpret that, misinterpret that to see him as being selfish. And they push that when they think about the invisible hand. They think, well, the invisible hand, that's when selfishness leads to good results. Well, selfishness can lead to good results. Certainly self-interest can lead to good results. But selfishness can be an awful thing. And Smith certainly did not see it as a virtue. Uh, Smith's virtues were prudence, taking care of yourself and being not taking excessive risk, justice, being kind to other people, not hurting them, beneficence, helping other people when you can. He never said anything good about selfishness. In fact, in the theory of moral sentiments, he's a big advocate for the destructive forces of wealth-seeking and ambition and seeking out fame and power. So you ask why did I write the book? Really, part of it, besides the fact that I think it's a glorious book that's unnoticed by too many people, I also thought it was a nice way to revive the real vision of, I think, that Adam Smith had for, for human beings and, and what makes us tick. In microeconomics, one of the very first things we learn is about how buyers and sellers are going to try to overcome impediments that are natural, that are artificial, in order to get what they individually want. And if they can help somebody else in uh, get what they want in the process, that's all, all to the good. But it seems as if what Smith is describing and what you describe uh, is a very micro, I should say, a very micro concept, which is how you treat others at the most basic level. A lot of the books about all kinds of human interactions, how we deal with tragedy, how we deal with success, whether we're respected by the people around us, how we respect or fail to respect the people around us that we don't like or like depending on their actions and their deeds. And um, Smith in that first micro kind of economics you're talking about, he writes in The Wealth of Nations about the human propensity to truck barter in exchange, that we're always jostling for a bargain, for a deal, trying to find ways to improve ourselves. And he says, if you want to find somebody to trade with, you better look and see what's good for them. And so Smith saw commercial life as a very interactive process, which of course it, it is. It was more so in his day. It was, a, it was a micro. You couldn't get on Amazon and order stuff. You had to go down to the local shop and, and, and make a deal. 
Uh, there's still there were posted prices, of course, but it was a much more face-to-face -face activity. In the theory of moral sentiments, what he's writing about is the face-to-face -face activity of approval and judgment, respect, honor, admiration, and so on. That when we make social actions, when we brag about something we did or we're ashamed of something we did or we reveal something we did to a friend or a colleague or a relative, their response to us and how we anticipate that and a, a dance takes place of, of that kind of social interaction. And the parallel for me with the wealth of nations there is that just as any one of us has a small impact on, say, the price of apples. If I go out and I buy more, more apples, not that I don't drive the price of apples up, my demand is insignificant. If everybody in this building does it, it's insignificant. But if everybody in the world does it, it's going to change the way the apple market works. It's going to push up the price. It's going to encourage people to plant more apple trees and eventually there's going to be more apples, et cetera, et cetera. So every one of us in our financial, commercial interactions are sending out signals that are then put into prices which in turn – uh, affect the outcomes, like how many apples are going to be grown in a year in a particular area, part of the world. What Smith does is he takes that kind of idea and he brings it into the social context, which doesn't do this very explicitly, but it's it's there. He's saying that when I admire something you do, you learn that that's a positive thing and you tend to do more of it. Now, what's one interaction between you and me? Insignificant, like one transaction with apples. I come on a Tuesday and I buy twice as many apples. You're not going to run out and say, I'm, I'm buying four more orchards. But if we're all constantly judging things favorably that are honorable and good, and if we're being – and we're disapproving of things that are not good, ultimately we create the culture that all of us interact in. We're sending out signals of approval and disapproval and they can be very small and very large. Small, it could be just a raised eyebrow. You did what? Or it could be gee, I don't think I want to be your friend anymore or vice versa. Way to go. Or, gee, I'd like to find myself spending more time with someone because I think they're an honorable and, and good person. So Smith took that micro-micro lo logic and it really was applying it to civilization and our whole culture and society. And it's very, in a sense, not judgmental at all that the, this idea that morality, how we as a society agree everyone ought to be treated – is something that society itself decides. Well, we decide it through our joint interactions with each other. No, uh, I argue that the, the phrase we decide, we don't really have a verb for how we as individuals acting create the norms of what's acceptable and unacceptable in our interactions. Uh, you're wearing a tie today. I'm not. I took a little bit of a chance. I went tieless, right? If I'd come in in a dirty T-shirt with holes in it, you kind of would have said, gee, that's weird. Why do you come dressed like that? So those kind of things all get created. And who decided that it's not really a good idea to wear a really comfortable with holes in it T-shirt? And the answer is, well, we did through our judgments and acceptance or not of these different things that we do. But we didn't really decide it in the way we normally think of what we decide, which is if I said we decided – a group of us decided to go out for a drink after work. Oh, well, you got together and you talked about it and you worked it out. We didn't do that with clothing. We don't do that with manners. We don't do that with charity. We do it through this emergent process from the bottom up where all of us through our individual actions of approval and disapproval create a environment for us to interact in. And that's really – to me, that's the – 
one of the deepest things that economics has to teach us is thinking about how complex processes emerge undesigned by any one of us and yet created by all of us. Uh, Smith's contemporaries uh, and fellow Scott, Adam Ferguson, called it the res- things that are the result of human action but not human design. So they come from us. We, we create them, but we don't create them the way we usually say we create or we decide. A group of people get together. They argue it out. They maybe take a vote. Instead, it just sort of emerges through these myriad of interactions. And that's really – Smith was deeply interested in that and, of course, as was Adam Ferguson. So was David Hume. And I think we should all be interested in it. He also describes and, – and you carry on the, the, the description of this uh, man of system which is sort of the opposite, I I suspect, of a man of civil society. That is, this is a person who believes in order but is at his core inconsiderate. Well, he's a visionary, which is a negative term for Smith, right? Uh, It reminds me of when uh, a friend of mine went – when she met my daughter, when she my daughter was probably about four years old, a friend of mine said, you know, maybe she's going to grow up and be an activist. And I thought, oh, not an activist, please. <laughs> I want her to care about how the world works. I want her to try to make the world a better place. But I didn't want her to be an activist. It's usually a person, a system, a person who has a vision of how to impose a particular order on society rather than letting it emerge through the individual choices of all, all the people. So Smith's man, a system, is a visionary who has a particular plan for how society should work. And Smith says uh, he thinks he can order the people around uh, as if they were chess pieces, forgetting that the chess pieces often have a movement of their own. So you know the bishop goes diagonally, but I'm going to push him over here. And of course, that ruins the game of chess. And Smith says that ruins society if the person at the top thinks that he or she can impose a unique order that they see is right for the individuals rather than what the individuals choose for themselves. And, and we should be clear when uh, Smith describes the man of system, he's not just talking about politicians Correct. or uh, people who want to impose an order through legal means. He's is, is perhaps just describing somebody who is inconsiderate or rigid in how they approach specific aspects of life. Well, that's interesting. I don't I, I never thought of that actually. I, I th- tend to see it what I like about your question is most of this book is about you and me. It's about how we interact with each other. It's about our dreams and our ambition and what we should strive for and what makes us happy, etc. But every once in a while Smith gets interested in what he calls the statesman. You know, somebody he gives advice to them too, and those are typically political leaders. Most of them of them he's not so high on. He sees them as – he sees the whole court society, the, the royalty as a, a place of fawning and pandering and pitiful attempts of people to attract attention to themselves. But everyone's he's talking about a leader. And to me, the man of system is about somebody who wants to remake society. You know, the worst form of it would be a Stalin or a Mao or Hitler. Uh, but if you bring it down to the next two levels, a politician who's got a vision or who's not a dictator, but then an individual it could be a bad family member trying to impose what you're suggesting. It's an interesting way to think about it, a bad family member trying to imp- impose, say, a vision of what's best for the child when, in fact, maybe it's only best for the parent and the child really is better off with a different set of, of assistance. When I try to drill down and understand at their core 
uh, the differences between libertarians and conservatives, it seems like Smith is dealing with that uh, at some level. Uh, libertarians view uh, social interaction, I think, more more broadly as something that is agreed upon and norms emerge and then society broadly accepts those norms and just moves on. Whereas I think conservatism, more of its core, is taking a lot of those emergent institutions, taking them as given and then fighting on behalf of maintaining those institutions. What do you think of that? Well, I think there are a lot of differences between conservatives and libertarians and uh, you know, we're taping this on the day after election. election there was a rather interesting, uh, surprising piece written by Cass Sunstein suggesting that Republicans should read their Hayek and in particular point of the Hayek's essay, why I am not a conservative. And I think I think the the part that you're referring to that, that I that I agree with is the idea that uh, conservatives, of course, have a, have a lot of respect for tradition. So do many libertarians because they understand that a lot of traditions emerged for good reasons. Some, of course, emerged for bad reasons, emerged and created bad results, I should say. Uh, but, but I think both conservatives and libertarians should be aware that sometimes you can't just uproot something immediately and make, make it better, that things are connected in hidden and unseen ways. And I think there is a temptation – uh, by by many people across the political spectrum to impose their vision. Uh, of course, people say the same thing about libertarians. They say, well, yeah, they their vision too. They want to let everybody uh, do their own thing. And I'm thinking, yeah, that, that's a vision of letting people have their own vision. I, I don't really – it seems to be different than, than what other people want to impose. But um, I think uh, Smith – Smith was not a liber- hardcore – he's not an anarcho-capitalist, for example. Um, he, he argued for a role for the state. He was a very pragmatic uh, thinker. But as my, uh, as my friend Dan Klein said, likes to describe it, Smith has a presumption of liberty. He starts with the idea that liberty is generally a pretty good idea and let people be free to choose for themselves. And if you want to interfere with that, you better have a good reason. In that sense, uh, he has, that's his libertarian flavor. In this book, you and Adam Smith are talking about you and me as we interact more uh, at the granular level, to borrow a phrase. Um, what are the implications for this line of thinking about essentially respect and, and how to treat people, how to better the world for economics as, as a discipline? Well, I, you know, I think our discipline ha- has some serious problems. Uh, one of them is our vision of humanity, and our vision of humanity is that, uh, you know, and the economy as a whole is often a very mechanical vision. That there's a set of of wheels and levers and gears that all interact. And sometimes they don't go so well, so you got to fix them. That's the you know, we got to spend more or change the money supply. And economists, I think, too often see themselves as social engineers. And they say human beings as uh, pieces on chessboard to some extent to be given the right – we just have to get the incentives right. And I think what Smith in this other book, in The Theory of Moral Sentence, is is saying is that – first he's saying that human beings are – we're complicated. We're not tidy. There's not a simple model of how human beings behave, which is – the economist vision say of utility maximization. That's the formal way economists tend to think of human beings that that you know we take stuff and we create happiness. And Smith's saying that's not 
That's not how people are. We don't take stuff and make it. What creates happiness, what creates serenity and tranquility is, is, the, is the respect of our friends and neighbors, the honor that they give us, the times we spend together. That's what creates happiness. And I wish economists, uh, to the extent that they veer off into, uh, say, maximizing GDP, uh, would think more about the human enterprise in a broader and less tidy way, which is a Smithian way and uh, one that isn't so easily stuffed into a mathematical model. Russ Roberts is author of How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. He is also a research fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. You can subscribe to this and other podcasts at our website, cato.org.